Beautiful to hear those words sung and together to lift up those incredible truths before the Lord, especially in preparation this morning of hearing from Him from the Scriptures. We're in the midst of a series, as I noted at the beginning of our time together today, a series in the study of the book of Genesis. We're in the life of Abraham, and this morning we're in a particularly difficult place in the life of Abraham. A place where we see his lapse of faith, and we see him give over to the reality of fear. And I believe far too often we see a mirror of ourselves in this passage. People who profess one thing often with our lips and may feel particularly bold on a Sunday morning singing Rock of Ages, but who on Monday morning find those same besetting sins right there with us. By God's grace, it's our hope and prayer today that we might be able to say by the end of our time together, we've met with the living God and we are forevermore changed. Towards that hope, let's turn our attention now to Genesis chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God, he came to Abimelech in a dream at night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. You And all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness that you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. 
Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, having heard these words right now in the presence of your people, knowing that your spirit abides with us, we now ask you to open up our hearts to behold the wonderful things you have planned for us in this word. And that this word would become to us a living word, a sword that would pierce through bone and marrow all the way down to the heart. And in so doing would bring conviction and challenge. Oh, and yes, please, comfort. We need your grace in this moment. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But with you, all things are possible. Come, Lord Jesus, and glorify yourself. We ask it in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, it was a couple of years ago now where I had the great privilege of officiating a wedding of one of my dear, dear friends. Known him for over 25 years. In fact, we met at the very beginning of our 11-year-old All-Star Baseball League that began in Jones County, Mississippi. And I remember, in fact, uh, as I was reminiscing with him, in fact, not too long ago, a little bit about that season. Something particularly sticks out to me because it was a season where the Lord really taught me a lesson. One of the fears that every young baseball player has, those of you who have, who have played ball and, and, and maybe know this firsthand, is there's a fear, especially when you're young, of the baseball itself. In case you don't know this, baseballs are hard. They're, they're very hard, and when you get hit by them, they, they hurt. And somehow or another, I had managed to not get hit by a baseball until I was 11 years old. One of the very first times I stood up to the plate that season, I got beamed right here. And as I walked away limping to first base, my whole life around baseball changed. Uh, my mechanics at the plate the rest of the year began to completely shift from what they ought to be in order to be a faithful, solid hitter in baseball. I began to stand further away from the plate. I began to drop my elbow in fear, losing all of my power, undercutting the ball rather than swinging level. I was stepping away from the ball rather than stepping towards it. The average plummeted. My RBIs were nothing. It was a terrible season. And by the skin of my teeth, I think only because... The coaches knew that if I ever got my act together, I'd be an okay baseball player. I made it into the All-Star League that year, but I kind of limped in, and I realized that something needed to change. 
I realized something that I would have to learn over and over and over throughout the course of my life. And that is that if we experience fear and we give in to that fear, that bad habits often develop because of it. We're actually at a very interesting section in the life of Abraham. Some of you, as I was reading this text, thought, is Nate re-preaching a sermon that he gave just a few weeks ago? Because I remember distinctively reading a text like this where Abraham had, had gone into a place and had said that Sarah was his, his sister rather than his, his wife and she had done similarly with him as his brother. And no, you're not going crazy, but no, I'm not re-preaching that sermon. So don't worry about that. That was back at the end of Genesis chapter 12. Different place, moving into Egypt, but same old story. And he has gone back to his old ways in the context of this passage. He has, like me as it were, gotten afraid in the moment of pressure at the plate. And instead of just bad habits developing, he has actually had besetting sins develop. And the soul mechanics of his spiritual life are in grave need of correction. Because he has decided to opt for fear rather than faith. He has cast his lot with human wisdom and strength rather than God's promise and presence. And not surprising in the context of this passage, we see him utterly fail. But not surprising in this text, we see God utterly succeed. In the midst of this exploration of Genesis chapter 20, I want you to have your mind tuned towards and your eyes peeled for Abraham's fear and faithless plans, God's faithfulness, and perfect redemption. I want you to have your kind of mind focused on that and your eyes peeled for Abraham's fear and faithless plans, but God's faithfulness and perfect redemption, because we're going to see both of those in spades as we look at Genesis chapter 20. Now last week, if you'll remember, if you were with us, we studied together uh, that very difficult, challenging passage, Genesis chapter 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we saw the descent of Lot and his family. It it's a very difficult passage. You bore with me quite well last week as we worked through the difficulty of that content. In that passage, we said something that actually, actually kind of leapfrogs into this passage as well. We said there are certain places that we will go or certain people that we might get with where certain sins might begin to show up in our lives. Certain vulnerabilities, certain susceptibilities to sin, if given the right context, given the right group, begin to show up in our lives. Some of you this week were very kind in emails and in conversations to simply note, hey, I've really been thinking about that point. And I've noticed that sometimes when I get out of routine, sometimes when I've had a great success, sometimes when I'm in the pain of suffering, those are the points where I tend to have struggles and particular vulnerabilities to certain sins in my life, the so-called besetting sins, the ones that the writer of Hebrews says entangle us easily. Well, what we see here in this passage is that Abraham has a certain context uh, where he has a besetting sin that reveals itself. And the, the context is moving to a new place. 
When he goes to a new place and he has a fear of possible danger, he's got a strategy to deal with it. Here at the opening of this passage, he's moving from the Oaks of Mamre, where we've seen him in the last several chapters. And now it is that he's come to the territory of the Negev between Kadesh and Shur, to the place of Gerer, where Abimelech is king. And just as he did back in Egypt, back in Genesis chapter 12, he's got this strategy that he comes up with. And it's a strategy that's been developed out of the fear. He tells us what that fear is in no uncertain terms in verse 11. He says, you know, I just don't think there's probably fear of God in this place. And when I get in there, they're going to kill me. The the fear is is they're going to get his neck. They're going to have him. And he's got to do something in order to protect himself. And so he comes up with what seems like an ingenious plan. He says it there in verse 13. I'm just going to say that Sarah is my, my sister, and Sarah's going to say that I am her, her brother. It's, well, it's, it's, a, it's a very simple, straightforward plan. It's a strategy that has worked throughout all of the ages. In fact, we see it very commonly in our own day and time. You, you know it. It's called lying. Some of you have used this strategy before. I will admit to you, I have used this strategy before. Guilty as charged. Now, I think Abraham would actually uh, take issue with my charge of, uh, of lying. You see, he's, he's more slippery than that. If you actually look in the passage in verse 12 of the text, he tells us, listen, Abimelech, I know this seems very hard and difficult and confusing to you, but yes, she's my wife, but to be quite honest, I really wasn't telling a lie, technically. She, she is my sister. She's the, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she, and she became my wife. Oh, he's a sly one. Notice he's got it all worked out in his mind. He's, he's rationalized it to the point that it's, it's not really a lie. It's not so much that I, I told a falsehood about my relationship with Sarah, for she is my sister. I just didn't tell you everything about the nature of our relationship. That's right, modern politicians don't have anything on Abraham when it comes to the slipperiness and the slyness of these, of these words and the wanting to parse them and define them so specifically. But of course, when we begin to move through the motivations and the intentions of Abraham's heart, and we actually begin to, to, to move past that parsing of words. We see the intentions and the motivations of his heart. And it's sometimes the way we communicate with each other if we're, if we're, if we're not honest here in this, in this room is that we'll, we'll tell a half-truth that, that's meant to lead you to some whole falsehood. You see, he was telling a half-truth, but what did he want Abimelech to hear? He wanted him to hear a complete falsehood. He wanted to pull the wool over his eyes. He wanted to deceive him. We know that that's Abraham's motivation and intention. That he wants to protect himself and he wants Abimelech to draw the conclusion that essentially Sarah's available. She's my sister. Now, as we look at this, we might think to ourselves... Why would he do this? 
What, what's going on in his mind? Why would he do such a thing? Well, this is the spiral of besetting sin. This is the rabbit hole that we tend to fall down in the midst of our deceit and our, our desperateness to protect self. Is we begin to so consider our own needs and interests, and we tend to be so self-protective and motivated that we're even willing in a case like this to throw our own wife under the bus. That's exactly what he does in this passage. I mean, right there in verse 11, I'm just worried that they would kill me. You hear any concern for Sarah there? I don't, I don't hear anything. Uh, he, he has no concern for Sarah. It's just a ploy to save his own neck. The realization is this is deceit that leads us all to draw the conclusion that this is a disgrace. That he would act this way. Well, when you get underneath the language, it's even, it's even worse than, than, than we're looking at at this moment. I mean, look at the way that he, he talks to her. He says to her, this is the kindness that you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. He says that there in verse 13 as he's explaining himself to Abimelech. Now, this is Abraham. Husbands, kind of get in mode here. You say to your wife, hey, this is the kindness that you need to do to me. Lie. Lie. He's now, he's got some moral confusion. He's now opted for something that's clearly wrong and he's calling it an act of kindness. It's the kind of devious phrases that we sometimes use in, in, in married life. You know, if, if you really love me, you, you'd do this thing for me. You know, this thing. You'd do it for me. If you really, if you really loved me. Deceit. Um, disgrace. But, but notice now, manipulation. Isn't that the way sin often works? It comes in clusters. One sin sort of bleeds into another sin that bleeds into a, another sin. And that's the rabbit hole of sinfulness that we see in this passage. And in fact, it's, it's, it goes just a little bit deeper before we hit the bottle. Notice what he says. This is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Oh, you thought he'd only done this twice. No, it's only recorded for us twice. At every place. This was their mode of operation. This was their pattern of behavior. This was the standard operating policy manual procedure of Abraham and Sarah's married life when they moved to a new place. Do you know what begins to happen when you tell a lie repetitively? Some of us know this. You begin to believe it. You begin to be confused in your own mind. Is it a lie? I felt bad the first time. I thought about it the second time. But by the third time, it was just, it was, it was, it was just the way it was. By this point in the context of the passage, it's undoubted that Abraham himself is, is confused. You see that in the explanation that he gives to Abimelech. He is stumbling all over himself to make sense of why he did what he did. Isn't it remarkable in this passage? A Canaanite king is on the moral high ground over Abraham. How could you do this thing to me? I thought, this, I thought Abraham was the one who was supposed to be living in righteousness. 
deceitful, disgraceful, manipulative, and then repetitive. Now, we can feel that pretty quickly in the text, can't we? Because we have relationships and family members and we have experiences that lend to that. There may be something that I would argue is even more grievous in the context of the passage that we would probably skip over if it wasn't just raised up for us to see it. And the fact of the matter is this. Abraham seems to have no consideration of God or the promises that have just been given to him about a son. There's no mention of it. Now, I just, in case you ever get deeply discouraged, as I do, about how forgetful I am of the promises of God, Abraham has just had the Lord himself visit him in the previous chapters, like with two angels, and hung out at his tent for a while, ate some great food, got prophecy from them, and said, within a year, your wife is going to have a child. And then we read a page or two over within the context of this year. And he has just sent his wife into the clutches of a pagan Canaanite king. And there's no mention of the promises of God. There's no mention of the coming son that has just been given. It's like the promises of the Lord are so distant from him. Why? Because he's so full of himself. He's so full of himself. Not even a whisper of what it is that the Lord has just spoken to him. And if you can just put yourself in the, in the shoes of the passage for just a second, what if, what if Abimelech had actually had relations with Sarah? That's the position Abraham has put her in. What if she'd conceived? Remarkably, in the doubt of Abraham, in the self-consuming nature of Abraham, not only has he thrown his wife under the bus and compromised her own purity and integrity, but he has indeed ditched the entire redemptive plan of history. In one fell swoop. And so from the beginning and the end of this passage, we see nothing but Abraham, who is lauded as the man of faith, described as a prophet. The first time we read the word prophet in all of the Old Testament, right here in this passage. A man of God. And what do we see? All-consuming fear, faithless plans, utter failure. Now, before we move on, it's appropriate that as we sit in this text to just apply this to our lives for just a minute. Because how many of us, myself included, have fears right now that rack our minds and our hearts? That maybe in, in, the, in the safe haven under the means of grace in this moment where the Spirit is work, where there's closeness to the Lord, that maybe even right now you're sensing as His Word comes to you, but by Monday morning or Tuesday we'll feel somewhat distant and you'll go back to those racked fears and anxieties and worries that sometimes are paralyzing you. What would it look like to not go through life always strategizing how to maneuver around your fears in human wisdom and strength, but to instead face your fears with God's wisdom and strength? What would that look like? Well, I want to just suggest three things to you in the facing of our fears as we walk through our normal life and even brainstorm for a second about what it might look like if Abraham had done these things. Number one, 
the first thing we must do when fear, especially the kind that you know is racking your heart, you, you, it's taking your joy, it's flooding your mind, the first thing we must do is confess our fear thoroughly. Confess our fear thoroughly. I'm going to admit something to you because I think it's probably true for you as well. When someone asks me, Nate, are you fearful about that? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not fearful. I've got, I mean, the Lord, He's with me, um, His promises. And I mean, right, I just start preaching and telling you things about truth, and, uh, and I'm afraid. And I'm afraid. Maybe you have a, a little bit of that default that's there. Uh, uh, not, a, not the humility impulse that says, yes, I, I am, I'm fearful. I need to go to the Lord in confession. And not just the surface level confession. I mean, this week we're talking about some health concerns. And, 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 and one of you, sweetly, like me, you don't particularly like going to the doctor, right? So I just don't like going to the doctor. And then when I ask myself that question, why don't you like going to the doctor? Well, I, I don't want to receive any bad news. Why don't you want to receive any bad news? Because I don't want to die. So you don't want to go to the doctor because you don't want to die, but you actually need to go to the doctor so that you might not die. So there's this you know, conundrum that you're in. But what I named as the fear is I don't want to go to the doctor, but what's the real fear? What's the, the fears underneath? The fear underneath is actually a spiritual issue that needs to be addressed. What's going on? I give that just simply as an illustration. Confess your fears thoroughly. Now, I, for many of us, we can't just do that on our own. We, we sit at our dining room table and we fret. We often need other people to speak into our lives. It, it may be that your fears are not being addressed and not being confessed thoroughly because you're trying to do it on your own. When we get into our own heads and we allow our fears to get louder than anything else, sometimes we need someone from the outside to share with us, to pray for us, and to intercede for us. There is nothing more beautiful than someone to pause and put a hand on your shoulder and to pray for you in the midst of your fear. But friends, they'll never be able to do that if you don't tell them you're afraid. And you'll never begin to receive the relief that God intends for you to enjoy if you don't confess your sins and your fears thoroughly. Second thing that we need to do is we need to speak to our fear truthfully. We need to speak to our fear truthfully. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said years ago in his book, Spiritual Depression. He said, a lot of the issues that we face in life are because we listen to ourselves rather than speak to ourselves. You know, your heart is a liar. Your heart is a liar. Think of all the things that it says to you throughout the day. Think of all of the shame and the guilt that it levies your way. Think of all of the things that it, it statements, self-statements and, and, and identity markers that it gives to you that, that only drag you down or only puff you up, both of which are lies. Speaking the truth to ourselves helps us shut down the babbling of our fear. It, it allows us to be able to say, listen, here's what God's Word says. Listen to this fear. This is more true than what you're telling me. And it dispels the lies that the fear is, is trying to speak to us. When we confess our fears thoroughly, we open up ourselves to be able to gain a voice to speak to our fears truthfully. Whether it's from our own voice, reading the Word of God through the power of His Spirit, or coming from someone else. 
But the third thing we must do as we confess our fears thoroughly, as we speak to our fears truthfully, is that we must trust God completely. I hang out a lot in John chapter 14 through John chapter 17 because I just love those verses. The high priestly prayer, the vine and the branches, the promises that Jesus gives to his disciples just before he is going to the cross. I love the beginning of John 14. Peter has just been told by Jesus that, hey, I know you think you're pretty awesome. And you're going to stand with me in my trial. And you're going to be with me till the end. But you know what? Before the cock crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's just undone by this. But he says to him at the beginning of John chapter 14, Listen, Peter and disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. There's a real sense in in that moment is that Jesus is in some sense saying to Peter, Peter, I don't need your strength to go to the cross. I don't need you to be strong for me. I don't need your your perfections to get me there. You're going to need me, Peter. Don't, Don't be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. You know, the reason this third point is so important in bedding down our fears is that trusting God completely is doesn't mean that you have complete understanding. It doesn't mean you know how everything's going to to work out in the short term. It means that you have to trust God with all the things that you don't know, in all the things that might happen, with all the things right now on your heart that you can't change. You have to trust God completely. As Abraham went into Guerrero, and as he's talking to Abimelech, what would it have been like if he had actually practiced what it is we talked about? Well, if apprehensions had been rising in his heart as he'd moved in uh, to that place, maybe he would have said to himself, Soul, why are you afraid? And and the soul might have answered, Because I don't want to die. And then he would have been able to speak the truth to his soul. Look to God and remember all that he's told you. Do you remember how we told you that he's going to make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth? Genesis 1 to 3. Do you remember that he's promised you a child through Sarah in Genesis 15 and that he just stood before you only days ago in person to assure you of that promise after your last lapse of faith so that you would know actually the timeline within the year this child is going to be born? Don't you remember that you were in this exact situation in Genesis chapter 12 when you were going into Egypt just a decade or so ago? And do you remember how poorly that went? But do you remember how faithful he was? You think you could trust him this time? Might that have changed the unfolding of Genesis chapter 20 if those things had been to the forefront of the consciousness of his heart and his mind rather than flooded with the fears that were all around him? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. You see, what Abraham really needed is not to trust his own human maneuvered solutions. He needed to trust the God who is always the solution. The God who is always the solution. He didn't need to change the circumstances. 
He didn't need to overcook it or overthink it. He needed in faithfulness to trust what God had already said to him. And to trust the God who is always the solution. And that's what we see in this passage. And immediately in the midst of this mess, what is it that God does? Well, he comes to Abimelech in a dream. Now you might half think, Sarah, his wife, has been captured by the king. You might think, you go, I should probably, I probably go tell him. I, I might should come clean. Maybe I should, maybe I should come up with a plan to, to save her. I don't see any of that of interest in this text. What I see is in the mess that Abraham has made, God intervenes through a supernatural dream to a pagan Canaanite king. It's God who comes in the midst of this. He is the one who intercedes for his people. And notice what he does in his intercession. He is the one who protects the godly seed. He is the one who protects the godly seed. There is Abimelech now married to Sarah, but we're told in the passage that he had not yet touched her. Do you remember what God said in verse 6? Yeah, you haven't done it because I hadn't let you. I restrained you. Friends, if you, are you ever more encouraged in a moment like this that God is not enslaved to our will, but actually often works against us? Isn't that a beautiful thing? He works against us oftentimes because he knows what is right and good. He intercedes for his people. He works against their will. He protects the seed. And notice he even creates a plan to save Abimelech. It's a really frightening moment when Abimelech is having this vision and the first words he hears from God is, you are a dead man. That's a bad day, friends. That's a bad day when God comes to you and he says those words directly. But he says there's a plan. Abraham is a prophet. He can pray for you and intercede for you. And if he does and you give back his wife, then you will be saved. Notice Abimelech follows those instructions to a T. He follows them to a T. What's remarkable about this is that Abraham's promises in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, you know what they were? They were that God was going to make Abraham a blessing to the nations. Well, you know what Abraham has become? A curse upon, the, upon Abimelech and his people. But what is God turning it into? A salvation story. He's saving Abimelech even from his own lack of knowledge, even from his ignorance. In the midst of his activity. And by the end of the passage, here's just remarkable. Friends, it's just utterly, it's, it, you can't make this up. He, they're leaving Gerar and he's opening up just the property that's before him. He says, Abraham, you can go anywhere you want to go. He showers him with animals and servants. And he gives to Sarah a thousand shekels. As if to pay ten times the bride price. As he gives Abraham his bride back to him. And in what is somewhat of a, I can't help but see a wry smile, some irony in it. Abimelech says to Sarah, I've given your brother a thousand shekels of silver. Wink, wink. I hope to live. And God pours out his blessings on Abraham and Sarah and Abimelech is saved by the end. And you think to yourself, now let me get this right. They sinned, they made an entire mess of it. God intervened, protected his seed, rescued Abimelech and showered them with blessings. For why? Because he loves them. 
and because He is faithful and they are not. Friends, I don't know if you have a tendency like me, but to think that good things come to you because you're awesome. This passage changes that logic entirely. We confessed our sins earlier with the language at the opening of our confession. There is none righteous, no, not one. Is anywhere this more illustrated in technicolor than Genesis chapter 20? Oh, there is. In your life. And in mine. Because centuries from this point, there would be a one who would intervene on the behalf of his people, not because they were smart enough to conjole him to come down or good enough to earn his merit or favor, but because of God's love and this protected seed, that one, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come. And unlike Abraham, he would be faithful in all the ways that Abraham was faithless. And he would not try to self-protect himself. But he would willingly lay down his life in order to care and protect and save all of us. Do you see the outline of redemption is here in Genesis chapter 20. And it's here to assure you that there is someone to trust in and it's not you. But it's the God who is the solution. And the God who loves you if you are one of his this day. Believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. I know you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But I do know what's going to happen at the end. And at the end, Jesus wins. And for everyone who's in Jesus, that's a win. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, the Lord Jesus Christ says to you. Father in heaven, would you please confirm these truths to us now? Train us up in godliness and in righteousness. Bed down the fears of our hearts. Increase the trust of our lives in you. And with us, Lord, come and glorify yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.